This is Toasted Sister. I'm Andy Murphy. And today I am with Felicia Kokokzin Ruiz. She is a holistic healer. Um, hi, Felicia. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We're here in monsoon season in Phoenix. Nice. So um, you, you um, I, I introduced you as a holistic healer, but what are some of the things that you do? I know it's kind of a long list there. <laughs> yes. For the past 23 or so years, I've been a massage therapist, holistic chef. I work with uh, energy healing, aromatherapy, herbal treatments. I have, a, I guess, a big medicine bag of things that I, I work with with clients and with my family. All right. And so where are you from? I know uh, some of your bio information says you have ties to New Mexico. Where did you grow up? I was actually born here. Um, my family on both sides are all from northern New Mexico, and they moved here in the mid-60s where me and my siblings were born. But our roots go back on some parts of my family since time began, and then on some parts we are Mexican and Spanish, and but all rooted in New Mexico. Nice, nice. Me too. <laughs> so what what are what are your tribes? I forgot to mention. Let me put it this way: we don't ha- recognize um, or are recognized by any tribe because our families were what is now called henisados. They were people that were taken from their tribes to work with Spanish families, and so we do know that our family is Tewa. Some of my family they're actually registered um, with the Diné Nation. But they are Hopi Tewa. It's just the, because of history where they ended up, they're registered as Navajos. But my immediate family were not registered with any tribe because our family was um, removed, uh, taken from, or migrated um, towards Santa Fe and Albuquerque and were living with the Spaniards. Okay. Lots yeah. of history there. It's like a yeah. mini history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everybody who sort of digs into New Mexico history finds out that there's just so much more than, um, you know, the tribes uh, and and the Mexican people or even the Spanish people who came here so long ago. And that um, also makes for some really interesting uh, food that comes out of the Southwest area. Um, what, what are some of your earliest memories of uh, um, food? What, what did you learn from your, your grandma or your mom about food? I would say a few things really stand out. Um, the first one being green chili. Uh, the second being blue corn, and the third being um, the wild greens. Uh, where my dad's side is from, which is closer to Picos, we used to go visit him, and I remember just picking all these wild greens. You know, we would cook those up with some beans and with dried corn. I love doing it. We can't pick those so much here in Phoenix where I live now, but when I can get to, you know, back home to New Mexico, I like to try to find those growing wild. Uh, you were featured on an article in Spirituality and Health, and you talked about how plants are um, like your relatives. And uh, you mentioned green chili, and green chili season is almost here. Uh, how, how do you understand green chili's personality? 
Um, kind of like what I said in the story, uh, I really feel like it's something that it's just always around. And I had used the example of, you know, a family member, like a brother. It's just always around. Um, and in, at least in its physical form, it's always in our house, whether it's, you know, green chili that's been dried into a powder or, you know, frozen to be eaten all year round or the smoke um, filling up the house. It's just something that has always been around. And I always think of green chili as being somewhat of an irritant, you know, when you're roasting it and it's burning your eyes. It's, you know, it's like a, a family member that's always around. Sometimes they can irritate you, but you love them anyways. Right. And we love our green chili here. Like for the month of September, late August, it smells like roasted, strong green chili outside of any grocery store or outside of right. Hastings, too. <laughs> In right. the parking lot it's of Hastings. One of my, it's, it's just one of the best aromatics. It just brings you right back to the first place you re- really remember it. And just for that, I, I love, I wish we had like a green chili incense. Right. <laughs> right. I know there's starting to be a lot of uh, green chili desserts and stuff like that. Maybe there needs to be some incense and candles next. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, yesterday I just put some green chili on the comal and, and it smoked up the, the house nicely, but we don't have the luxury of having it all year round. So. Right. <laughs> right. So a lot of people may not understand our love for chili. I mean, you know, it's something that can completely like destroy your mouth and cause some pain, but uh, we love it here in the desert. And sometimes uh, maybe people don't understand the desert. Um, It's a place you have to grow up to love or just, you know, you automatically fall in love with it when you're driving through it, when you move here. But um, what about the desert do you want people to know about, especially when it comes to desert foods? I know a lot of people, they might look at the desert and it's a lot of spiky dry things and they don't really see any food there in our landscape what do you want people to know about our food in the desert right well i teach a lot of indigenous foods classes here in the phoenix area and it can be a combination of people that have lived here most of their life or people that are you know recently transplanted from a different city and i'm always surprised how both groups always say the same thing. Like they just see the desert as being like a barren, you know, kind of a wasteland. Like they see that it's beautiful, but they don't see that it's bountiful. And so when I'm teaching these classes and we're, you know, doing all of these tastings with all of these different foods that come from the desert, they're, they're quite in awe actually. And my understanding is that we have one of the most abundant food sources in terms of, you know, our ecosystem, the desert. We have over 400 um, edibles here, which most people would never think of. But it's just food is everywhere. It's almost in disguise. And you just have to know how to forage it, what to look for. And probably more than anything is how to prepare it because, like you mentioned, there's so many different psyche, you know, things on so many of the different foods here. 
what are some of the traditions that you still um, keep and follow today when it comes to taking from the desert or taking from a plant? Well, I live very close to a mountain, and so when the weather is nice, I do go up to the mountain a few times a week, and I usually take with me um, my little pouch with some tobacco. Sometimes I just take a bottle of water with me. What I was taught was to never take from the plant. First, if the plant didn't want to be taken, that's just kind of a heart exchange you you know you have with the plant first, just to be mindful. And if the plant agrees that it wants to be taken, then I always do a little offering of tobacco, or I'll leave the plant some water. Okay, cool. And and what does it feel like? I mean, can you explain what that feels like when you do get permission, or when you know a plant is is ready? Sometimes when I go on my walks and I'll find a plant that I could use for tea, you know, for medicine or um, something to harvest to cook with, I always ask the plant, you know, is it all right if, if I use you for medicine? And sometimes you'll just get a direct answer. It's not something that I can really explain. Um, it's something that you just feel. And sometimes I have been directed to turn your head to the right and take a plant, you know, next to, like if the plant could talk, like, don't take me, take the one next to me. And I'll walk to that plant and I'll ask the same question. And that plant will just speak to you and and say, yes, of course. And sometimes when I'm gathering, I'll realize then later that the plant that I originally wanted to take from, you know, was maybe in an area where, other people could take from it very easily where I, where the other plant was maybe in an area where most people wouldn't walk by it. So I kind of feel like sometimes that plant just knows, you know, maybe it needs a little bit of time for regrowth. Um, it, it's kind of like talking to yourself, but it's really just having this deep communication with the plant and trusting that they um, really know what's best for us. They've been my my greatest teachers, and I'm really fortunate that I get to live by an area where I can go walking, you know, and come back with with medicine, not more than, you know, a 20-minute walk. Yeah, and when you're talking about medicine, I know sometimes, uh, you know, we we go to the doctor and they tell us, oh, you got to eat this way, you got to eat that way, or stop on, uh, stop drinking soda, stop doing this. Um, but they don't really tell us exactly what kind of recipes. They don't send us home with a cookbook or anything like that. And th- that's also part of your job, right, as to um, uh, sort of help people cook some of these healing foods. Correct. Um, my experience um, cooking for decades now has been just with clients and friends just saying, you know, I just got diagnosed with diabetes or high blood pressure or, you know, I, I had some heart issues and the doctor told me to do this. What happens is they get home, they have no idea what they're supposed to do or how they're supposed to do it. They're unclear about which foods would be best for them. So what I like to do is I like to sit with the client and depending what the client's background is, you know, if it's someone like me who has um, an indigenous background, of course, I want to help them 
heal their body through diet using foods indigenous to their area here. They're from here. And I just like to take them through the steps of how to prepare the food. And it's not just a physical uh, healing. It's also a spiritual healing because they're also reconnecting to those foods. And I believe that the, that the ancestors really want us to uh, eat these foods uh, once again. And it's, it's a really important part of our healing. Uh, putting yourself out there as sort of like a practitioner or like a, a, a healing coach, uh, you offer a lot of things to a lot of different people. And, uh, you know, maybe a lot of these people are not native, but um, what, what kind of permission did you get to sort of share that kind of knowledge with, um, with uh, people who, you know, just browse by your website and, you know, uh, hire you to, to help them out? Right. Well, first, I believe that the plants are not ours. They belong to everyone, and it's a community medicine. Um, I've been grateful or blessed, rather, to, and I am grateful to have sat down with many different teachers to learn about herbs and, and plants indigenous to the Southwest. So as I built up my um, knowledge base and was able to put together like um, a service package for people, I did go to my elders first and ask if that if I could have permission to share that. At least one of my aunties uh, said to me that what has really stayed with me is she said, of course, you know, please share this with others. She didn't care if they were indigenous or not indigenous because no one had shared that information with her. And now that she's in, you know, her 70s, she she recognizes that there was this gap where a lot of um, our people, indigenous or non-indigenous, have just kind of shifted their diet. And so she sees it important that we really uh, use this food as medicine. Uh, just browsing through uh, your new website, uh, Kitchen Curandera. Is that how you pronounce Curandera. it? Curandera. Mm-hmm. That is, um, it means uh, a traditional healer. Right. Um, my great-grandmother was a traditional healer in Old Town, uh, New Mexico. So I suppose I take after her. <laughs> okay. Curandera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you you combine a lot of um, uh, different teachings with um, maybe even modern teachings. I know you combine traditional knowledge with um, yoga. I mean, how do you make those kinds of connections, and um, maybe how effective are they? Um, I make those connections because basically all of the indigenous ways of healing from every part of the globe sources back to one main real deep medicine, and that is um, whatever you would like to call it, energy, source, the creator, the universe, uh, whatever word your mother tongue gives you, it all comes back to that, and it all has to do with healing ourselves from within, and so even with different yoga postures, different types of, let's say, Reiki, which, you know, is a Japanese word, all of these different ways of healing isn't really giving anyone any type of medicine. It's allowing people to tune in to whatever they want to call their source and use that energy to heal themselves. And so that's what I've combined together. And that's what I've been studying for the past 20 plus years. 
And uh, where do you see yourself in um, in native food, in the world of native food? I mean, there's so many different chefs working for a couple of different purposes, but uh, where do you see yourself as a uh, female native chef in the culinary world? Um, well, as a person who works with holistic healing, I really hope that I can be a voice, um, a spokesperson for Native people and showing how important um, our foods are uh, as medicine as well as our plants as medicine. Um, that's one reason why I like to bridge what I call, you know, Eastern medicine with Southwestern medicine because so many people, at least here in North America, they consider Western medicine only being what we would say would be allopathic medicine, traditional, like. American, you know, medicine, meaning here's a drug for this, here's a prescription for this, where we are the original people from here. And so that means we have our own Western medicine. And so what I hope to do is be able to teach people that our Western medicine has been here for generations and it's just as valuable as what people are looking for when they're looking for, let's say, complementary or alternative medicine. They tend to go east, meaning like Chinese herbal medicine, Indian medicine, when we have so many beautiful things here as well. Have you always been connected with your indigenous food? Have you always had this kind of understanding of uh, food traditions and your indigenous food? Uh, for most of my life, I've been a food person. I've always been curious by food and by plant medicine since I was really small. I was really fortunate to have seen my grandmother prepare different things and go out and wildcraft with her or my mother. Um, but it wasn't until I was in my, I guess, late 20s, early 30s that I really start um, realizing that it was not just an important thing for me to understand in terms of where the food came from and, and the meaning behind it, but I had this deep longing to want to understand it even more because I want it to be a little more spiritually connected to my ancestors, and because I do not belong to a tribe, it was a matter of connecting to my ancestors through the food. So probably um, in my late 30s, early 40s, you know, did I really start uh, making a big effort to self-educate myself, to study with different people in my community, to reach out to others that knew so much um, about the food, and to learn as much as I could. It's just been an evolution of from when I was little, and I'm still learning now. But it, it, for me, younger, as a younger person, I was curious. I would say in my 20s, I was more interested in the health benefits. And as I got older, I really understood it more deeply on a spiritual level. How do you think we can all be a little more interested in the health benefits of food and just that health, the value um, food has 
uh, or should have, or we should have that kind of value in our food um, in Native America. I know we've kind of strayed away with with all our um, high rates of diabetes and high blood pressure and obesity, but uh, you know the key to it all seems just going back to our traditional diets, learning, putting a more of an emphasis on food. How do you think we can uh, sort of make those connections? That's a little difficult for me to answer as a general suggestion for people because everyone is so different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working with so many different groups right now, and what I've noticed is depending if someone, let's say, grew up on the reservation, a lot of them, they don't know any other food than the commodity-type food, the food from the little local market. Mm -hmm. They don't really know the fresh foods. And so for them, it's not just about shifting their diet. It's about shifting their mindset. Some other people, you know, including some people in my family, there's just a big stubbornness of not wanting to change because that's all that they know. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like each person is different, and, and what I try to teach everybody is that something that I had heard long ago is, you know, food can be your best medicine or it can be your slowest poison, something along those lines. What I see is, you know, when people recognize that food simply isn't just something to fill your stomach, it's actually something that's supposed to sustain you, once they get to that mindset, then the little light bulb clicks, but it is difficult, you know, with everyone in a different situation, depending where they live and what their family life is like. And I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Um, uh, maybe my, the other part I wanted to know about was how to make this kind of knowledge um I guess accessible, uh, you know, not not making it feel like you have to be part of the in crowd to know some of this stuff because um, sometimes it seems like you have to be part of the in crowd or, you know, to, to know about what's healthy, what's not. I mean, a lot of people, we they work day to day, barely making ends meet. They're just busy all the time. They don't have time to forage. They don't even maybe have time to take a class on some of this. I mean, uh, what, do you, what do you think um, maybe Native chefs or maybe even tribal leaders could, could do to sort of make it seem like, I guess, more welcoming if, if they don't feel like it's welcoming? I, d- I don't know what, what um, um, people's no, attitudes are towards that. Yeah. <laughs> I I think um, it can feel overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and that's actually a word that I hear from a lot of people who are really wanting to make a change, but they don't know where to begin, or they don't have the money to, you know, start buying different ingredients, because that alone feels overwhelming. They're not sure where to begin. And one of the things that I always recommend to people is to just start in your community, whether it's your neighborhood, a community center, if you go to a church, to put together, you know, a handful of people and and everyone hosts a dinner at their house where, you know, kind of like a potluck and everyone attempts to make something healthy. It gives people the opportunity to have the dialogue. And one thing that I've really seen be successful is when people feel like they're working together as a community, as a tribe, as a family, um, as a network, they tend to do better 
overall, where if it's just one person trying to do something and make that change, it is valuable and it's important in there being a leader, but sometimes it can feel overwhelming because no one else is doing it with you. Mm-hmm. So what I'm um, in the process of uh, doing now is um, working with uh, Chef John Sherman, uh, the sous chef. He just put together a nonprofit. I will be working with him on on the board for his nonprofit called Natives. They are hoping to go to different places. I'll be here in the Southwest and going to different communities and helping them with a curriculum of how basically the steps of everything you just asked me, you know, ways to get more indigenous foods into people's diets, how to prepare the foods. I mean, it's everything. It's all one big circle. It's not just a matter of saying this is what you need to do and good luck to you. It's, it's really about helping people uh, move forward with all the right tools, information, the education that they need. So that's something that I'm looking forward to diving into in the next few months here. Yeah, yeah. I talked to him in the last episode. And um, uh, did it launch this month? Wait, or, or in July? It just launched. Um, it is in the process of getting all the paperwork, you know, worked out. But I'm, I'm hoping... I'm actually uh, doing some work with uh, Indian Health Services this month um, mm. through representing the sous chefs. So we'll be working with tribal nutritionists, helping them, you know, with knowledge so that they can take it back to their communities on ways to get more uh, healthful, you know, foods into the into their communities' diets, even if it's using the commodity foods, mm-hmm. because that's the that's the reality is. A lot of the people that are living on the reservation, if they are receiving commodity foods, they're suddenly not going to have um, access to all of the organic food and everything that we're, you know, recommending in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And so it's a matter of, like, what are small steps that they can take to make that box of food more nutritionally valuable than something that they would possibly make, such as fry bread. Okay, I, I've been thinking about maybe even writing an article or something about uh, commodity foods. Um, well, back back at Crown Point, I know we have uh, ground bison, we have mm-hmm. uh, frozen chicken breast, I've seen, and then just recently wild rice from one of the Ojibwe nations up there. Right. Uh, so it's definitely changed. I think I should do a Toasted Sisters show on it and have somebody from uh, the the Commodity Foods Program come on the show and just talk about this is what we've done. This is where we've come. Uh, these are the kind of foods that we have today. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things I think that probably needs to happen is just that training of how to use uh, wild rice. Because I can imagine, you know, Navajos out in the middle of nowhere in, in Arizona have never had wild rice before, ever in their lives. And then all of a sudden, right. it's in their commodity I didn't box. Up wild rice. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Just recently. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that's, um, that's a good point that you brought up because, mm-hmm. you know, I had to go and look at the commodity boxes here. Um, we didn't have uh, bison in, in those boxes. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it's something that varies from state to state. But, Wild rice and bison and all of those things, even if they are not indigenous to the exact area, at least they're indigenous to Turtle Island. 
They're mm-hmm. going to be far more healthier than a bag of bluebird flour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, one last question I was curious about, uh, just looking at some of the food photos you post and, l- and taking a look at your website. Uh, y- there's not very much meat on there. Uh, are you a vegetarian? So I've been a vegetarian for a very long time. Mm. And I guess technically I wouldn't be a vegetarian because I do eat meat um, as medicine. The only time I will eat meat is if I know that it's been... Uh, hunted and and killed by, you know, someone close to me, someone that I trust um, to have killed it, you know, with um, good intentions and and that it was wild game. That to me is um, very special and it's so different in its flavor and, and that will be the only time that I eat meat. I feel a very strong connection to, you know, our plant relatives, our animal relatives and you know, just as much as I feel like when I'm going on my medicine walks to co- to collect plants, that's a plant, and I'm still asking permission to gather it for medicine. It would be just as dishonorable to just eat an animal without asking for permission to eat it. That was Felicia Kokoxin Ruiz, holistic healer for mind, body, and spirit. For more information about her, visit her website, kitchencurandera.com. I'm Andy Murphy, host, producer, and creator of the Toasted Sister podcast, and thank you for listening. It's been a fast seven months so far, and I can't believe this is already the 15th episode. It's so fun producing these episodes, but it takes a lot of work. So please let people know about Toasted Sister. I'm still pretty sure it's the only podcast around that focuses only on indigenous food. You can subscribe to Toasted Sister on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podcast Addict. Music was created by C.W. Ione. You can hear more of his awesome blues music by visiting his website, cwayon.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com.